This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. We only have one hour to solve one of the most uh, serious issues uh, we face today. Can we have a rapid increase in the spread of nuclear power without <laughs> having a um, simultaneous increase in nuclear risks of proliferation and terrorism. And we have three uh, wonderful speakers to address uh, that question. David Victor, professor of law, the director of the Program on Energy and Sustainable Development. And I should add, the very first student I had when, I was, when he was an undergraduate and I was a uh, lecturer in the Harvard government department many years ago. Um, Bob Rosner, the director of the um, Argonne National Laboratory and a professor at the University of Chicago who's visiting here for this meeting and presented a wonderful uh, set of seminars yesterday uh, at CSAC. And lastly, Sig Hecker, professor of research in management sciences and engineering and my co-director at CSAC. I've asked each of them to speak for 15 minutes. I will pass them a note at 12. And I have warned them that I will pound the table with my shoe like Nikita Khrushchev if they get to 15 minutes. So I do want to leave time for questions and comments from the audience. David. Scott, thank you very much. Um, and if I can say, one of the principal reasons why I'm a political scientist is when I got to my senior year in college and I was taking a lot of what I thought were very dull classes, uh, the, the class, classes that were the most interesting were yours. And I remember to this day one lecture which was about the nuclear zoo. And you were talking about uh, bears and ostriches and so on, and different strategies for thinking about uh, uh, nuclear weapons. And I hope on this issue of proliferation that we're not of the ostrich variety, putting our head in the sand and kind of hoping the problem's going to go away. Um, I'm going to say just three things in my remarks about nuclear power and the climate change problem, because the premise for our panel is that nuclear power is getting a lot of attention for a lot of reasons, but in particular because of interest and concern about, uh, about climate change. So the first thing I'd like to say is that there's been a lot of talk about a nuclear renaissance. Um, I, I think to this day, the renaissance is more something that people write about than something that's actually going on, um, especially in this country. You know, you're not actually seeing real orders for plants. Um, there are some places in the world where real plants are being built and at significant numbers. There are a lot of really interesting projects going on in Central and Eastern Europe. These are projects, in some cases, finishing uh, reactors that were started in an earlier era and a lot of things being built. China, like in every area, is uh, making commitments that I think you actually see honored to build, uh, to build more, uh, more reactors. Um, I think the, the reasons for this renaissance are worth keeping in mind. In part, it's because of technological innovation. There are new designs and things that people are interested, interested in, more on the performance side and less, I would say, on the anti-proliferation side. But I uh, will ask, we'll wait to hear the comments of the other panelists on this issue. As somebody who studies utilities a lot, and the program that I run uh, spends a lot of time worrying about energy markets and, and a big chunk of that looking at the power sector in particular, it seems to me that one of the most important innovations has not been technological, it's been of a regulatory nature. 
that today in this country, uh, if this new regulatory procedure works, when you apply for a new reactor, you're going to get not only a license to build the thing, but actually a license to operate the thing, which is useful because one of the ideas behind building it is that you'll actually be able to operate it. So you have a sense that, that if you build what you say you're going to build, that you'll actually be able to, to make the plant uh, work. And that changes the financial calculation around this a lot. Now that's not the proliferation issue that's on this panel. But I think it's absolutely crucial for the proliferation issue on this panel because as you start getting real markets building many more reactors, you could imagine um, uh, many more reactors actually being built in a lot of different places in the world. Second thing I want to talk about is the climate problem in, in, uh, uh, directly. And should we expect that because of the climate problem, concern about global warming, which is caused mainly by the buildup of CO2, which is emitted mainly by burning fossil fuels, not entirely, uh, but mainly by, building, uh, by burning fossil fuels, should we expect a great interest in, uh, in nuclear power? And I think the answer for a long time has been an obvious yes. You should see a huge surge in nuclear power. I've been trying to go back to my own past and figure out if I've ever been an anti-nuclear activist because if you have been, then there's enormous amount of money and attention to be gained today by having a conversion, a kind of road to Damascus. There's just this morning I saw a notice of another new book coming out from somebody who used to be protesting against nuclear reactors and has now decided they're going to save the world. And this is a kind of gathering uh, uh, momentum around this, this issue that because of the climate problem, a lot of early re earlier reasons to be not interested in nuclear power have disappeared. And I think that's all true. But I'd like to call attention to um, three huge question marks in this area. One of them is cost. It used to be that when we ran models, energy models, that, that, we, that we used to figure out what was the lowest cost way of generating power, people had in their models numbers like it would cost $1,300 or $1,500 per kilowatt of capacity, nuclear power capacity, to build a new reactor. Then people realize, well, maybe that's too low. Maybe it's really high, like $2,000 per kW, kilowatt of capacity. And a lot of the energy models that look at optimal build-out in the Chinese and the in Indian context are still, to this day, using these smaller numbers. And so not surprisingly, when you ask the model what's the smartest thing to do, they go off and they start building nuclear power plants. Then real companies started talking to real providers of nuclear reactors, and they were in for a shock. The numbers were really high, like $2,500 uh, kW. Um, there are negotiations going on today in this country with GE and other reactor providers that are looking at projects that are in the $5,000 per kW range, possibly higher. I spent a long time this morning on a conference call with a utility that's <coughs> looking at runs that are north of $6,000 a kW. So this cost basis, and it's coming up for a lot of reasons, because steel prices are high, cement prices are high, um, engineering costs, design costs are incredibly high, partly because people, the skills to, en to engineer this are, are transportable skills, and so the run-up and demand for power plants all around the world and other big engineering projects has had an effect on uh, the cost here. This cost question, I think, is really, really important. So it doesn't dismiss from the issues around proliferation, but I think we need to be sober about the real uh, build out of these um, uh, of, of reactors. Um, two other just uh, points of, of hesitation, at least, uh, around nuclear power. A second is the lack of general seriousness in dealing with the climate problem. The, 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 the ratio of n column inches in newspapers on the need to be serious about the climate problem to 
actual changes in behavior, that ratio is extremely high right now. And um, when you start to add up all the numbers and you figure out whether people who are doing real things to reduce emissions, not just planting nuclear plants, but planting efficiency, improved efficiency, different kinds of coal plants that bury the carbon dioxide underground, all kinds of different projects. When you think of, when you look at what's really going on, not vaporware, but real action versus the level of effort needed to deal with a problem, there's just a complete disconnect, order of magnitude uh, disconnect right now. And so it could be that we won't build out, at least for concerns about climate change, we won't build out this technology as rapidly as we had originally thought. And the last important point is the incentive structure. Um, <clears throat> we're concerned about proliferation on this panel because we think in particular that people are going to build reactors in parts of the world that don't have strong mechanisms of governance, in particular governance around nuclear fuel. Um, if that's going to be driven by climate change, then presumably those countries are going to need to be concerned about climate change. For the most part, they're not concerned about climate change. And the me mechanism that exists today to encourage investors to go around the world in developing countries and, and build projects that would have lower emissions of greenhouse gases, that mechanism, sorry for a wonky term, but that mechanism is called the clean development mechanism. And the clean development mechanism gives you a credit for a reduction in emissions that you get from building a project in, in a developing country. The rules for the clean development mechanism explicitly forbid the use of nuclear power. So it's a little hard to see how, with the current rules, you're going to actually encourage a lot of building of nuclear power uh, around the world, unless there were a different strategy. And one of the things I hope we'll talk a little bit about is a different strategy. There's no question that nuclear power could make a really deep reduction in emissions. We've run the calculations in our group on what would be the reduction in emissions if the India-U.S. nuclear deal went through. This is the deal that's on life support, or maybe not even on life support anymore. I'm not sure it's somewhere in that realm of death and life support. Um, if that deal went through, by our estimates, which are much more conservative than the Indian government's estimates, and I think plausible, the reduction in emissions by the year 2020 would be on the order of 150 million tons of CO2 per year. And to put 150 million tons of CO2 per year into perspective, that is on the same scale as the entire European Union's effort to comply with the Kyoto Protocol. Not what they're saying they're doing on paper, but actual reductions in emissions. They're also doing a lot of trading and shell games and things like that, but actual changes in behavior are in the same scale. So this is a really big deal, potentially, um, although with the current incentive mechanisms in place, you can't actually do it. The third and last thing I want to just say is very briefly about the fuel cycle. I, I'm concerned that we're thinking about the fuel cycle and these issues of proliferation too much like engineers, if you like, and not enough like political scientists. And it seems to me that any kind of new mechanism to deal with the fuel cycle needs to First of all, think about countries in two broad categories. There are countries that are going to be unbelievable problem cases no matter what, like the Irans of this world and North Korea's of this world, and Sig Hecker is so much more experienced on these issues uh, th than I do. And I think we need to be, maybe not try to design the whole proliferation mechanism to lump in the same category these countries that are really severe problem cases with the countries that if we don't get the rules broadly right are going to be the big problem cases of the future, Indonesia's, Malaysia's, Brazil's, uh, Argentina's and so on. These are the countries that actually have the large potential for economic growth and for whom the fuel cycle, the new fuel cycle questions I think are the really, are going to be much more serious and are also amenable to regu regulatory action. <clears throat> 
The other last point I want to make about this is concerns credibility. It seems to me that there are a lot of really good ideas about how you'd redo the fuel cycle, like the like Mohammed El Baradai's plan and the IAEA, um, and, and leasing of fuels generally, and so on. The problem really is to design them in a way that they're seen as credible by the fuel by the by the countries that are going to use the fuel. And so long as those countries don't think the system is credible, and they see the existing proliferation scheme coming unraveled, and they see countries unable to deal with each other. And they, and, they, and they don't believe these leasing mechanisms are actually going to work, then they are going to do exactly what I do in the same situation, which is they're going to go off and try and build their own fuel cycle, because the last thing in the world they would want to do is build a reactor, a whole suite of reactors, and then not be sure that they could have a, a reliable source of fissile material. So let me stop there. Thank Great. you. Thank you. Bob. Uh, thank you. Um, so I'm not a political scientist. Also not an engineer. Um, uh, I'm a physicist, and so I will, uh, I'm going to be in the awkward position and talk in part about policy issues, which are in the domain of a political scientist, um, uh, but from the per perspective of a physicist. Um, so what I'd like to do first is just uh, set the stage by talking about the questions I'd like to talk about. First of all, uh, should we really be worried about nuclear proliferation? Just set the stage so you know where I'm coming from. The answer, my answer is absolutely yes. Uh, no surprise there. Uh, does a large increase in nuclear power within the United States uh, negatively impact uh, nonproliferation issues? Or does it not matter at all? And uh, my answer is it's not obvious. And you could make the, uh, the case either way, and I'll talk about that. Um, does a large increase in nuclear power in the rest of the world negatively impact nonproliferation? That, in my opinion, depends on how we go about dealing with that situation, very much along the way, uh, the lines that we just heard. And then uh, maybe the most telling question for us is, does it actually matter what we do, what the United States does? Um, that is, is there a, an effective, what I mean by effective is an executable uh, non-profession strategy for the world? And if so, what is it? Um, is there an effective executable, non-profession strategy for us, just in, uh, in isolation for us. Does that make sense? And then in general, are there such strategies out there? Uh, do we have a strategy as, an, as a country? Does anybody have a strategy? And I can just tell you my, my quick question is I think in terms of implementation, I think we have no strategy whatsoever. We largely work in very ad hoc ways. So uh, let me first talk about um, this issue of what, what I, I think the, the, the essence of the problem is, which is um, how is nuclear uh, power generation really connected to nuclear weapons? Uh, the fact is that all thermal reactors, whether light water or pressurized water reactors, that are based on a once-through fuel cycle um, naturally produce uh, plutonium, fissile material. And that material is mixed in with the spent fuel that comes out of the reactor. Um, if you think of a typical plant that somebody might want to build, something with your gigawatt plant, uh, you're producing hundreds of pounds of plutonium every year. Plenty of material to create weapons. Um, the separations technology that was developed um, by the US uh, as part of the Manhattan Project in the late, 80, uh, late 1940s, early 50s, is 
designed, intended to separate plutonium from the waste stream. And today, that in fact remains the only demonstrated, demonstrated commercially uh, available method for actually uh, doing uh, waste fuel, spent fuel reprocessing. In other words, what one can do today is a method that was designed for a very different purpose. It was designed to basically make weapons. So um, when it comes right down to it, the nub of the problem is uh, what do you really do with the spent fuel? The spent fuel is really the, uh, uh, the core of the issue, and that's what we really need to talk about. Okay? Um, so um, within the U.S., of course, we have a, a huge debate right now. Uh, we just heard about the, the non-nuclear revival, right? Um, uh, and the, we can talk about that as a separate issue, but I think it's very clear that um, the conditions that are set up in, right, in the States right now, with the once through fuel cycle, with a single repository, with the legislated limits on the uh, repository capacity and with limits on interim storage, basically the, all those things are internally contradictory. You cannot actually have nuclear power in the United States if you hold on to all of those things at the same time. It's just impossible. Um, so, um, if nothing changes on those, uh, on those ends, we will not have a revival because it's just simply impossible. Um, so something has to give. Either we have to give up on the once through fuel cycle and or uh, we have to give up on a single repository. I think that's unbelievably unlikely politically. And finally, um, we would have to change something about interim storage. And so having said that, I think it's fair to say that if we think about non-proliferation within the United States, I think, uh, I don't think there are very many folks who believe that the, uh, the kinds of surveillance tracking that we have within the United States of we weapons-grade material is such that there is a real proliferation danger from material that is in the United States. Okay. So we have, we have a spent fuel problem, but it's not a proliferation problem. It's a problem of just getting going. If we're really serious about nuclear, we have to change some things here. Okay, so um, uh, where does the risk really come from? Um, uh, it's just what I said earlier, which is that uh, all nuclear plants, thermal plants, uh, produce fissile material. Uh, in the distant past, if you go back you know, 30, 40 years, um, taking the, that fissile material out of the waste stream was very challenging. It was technologically challenging, extremely expensive and only certain technologically very capable uh, nations were capable of actually getting around that problem. Um, that is no longer true. Um, we've gotten to the point where, first of all, any technologically developed country is perfectly capable of separating out the fissile material, <coughs> which is not only the, we the weapon states, obviously, but also countries like Israel and Japan. Uh, if you look at technologically less capable countries, they can also do it. Think of India, Pakistan, North Korea. So what has happened is that with the, the one of the consequences of the march of technological progress uh, is that it's become much easier uh, to create a problem. And for that reason, uh, it is really true that plants that are built outside the United States are in fact at risk for proliferation. There's no question about that. Um, so what does that have to do with us? Um, so I think, I, I don't think anybody would argue that it's not in our interest to prevent further proliferation. 
What's less obvious is that when we're talking about you know, wh what do we do to help or, or, or hurt this problem, is it is the case that work that we do today on separations technology, basically to make it cheaper, uh, easier, uh, to separate the, the waste streams, uh, is basically in the direction of lowering the technological barriers to doing this, and no one in their right mind thinks that they can stop technological diffusion, even in areas which are regarded as of critical national security. We know, the past tells us, that technology will diffuse. If you know it's possible, you know people are going to be able to figure it out. And uh, so, it is, uh, uh, so one of the challenges that we have is as we press ahead with technology improvements, we're actually, in some sense, making it easier for others to proliferate. Um, I should also say that that attitude is unfortunately not shared by everybody else. For example, um, the principal uh, commercial vendor of nuclear technology in France, Arriva, is uh, marketing a separations technology, which they call COEX, which is a very slight variation of the Purex process, which was the process I referred to earlier, which is designed to separate out the plutonium. It takes, if you look at the flow sheet for COEX, it is trivial to modify it to basically go back and separate out the plutonium. So you have one of the major vendors in the world. Uh, the Riva is very active in marketing both separation technologies and nuclear reactors, basically marketing technology that is trivial to use to circumvent uh, uh, non-proliferation issues. Uh, so the question is really what now? Um, so m my view is that um, the issue really is uh, focusing on those countries where um, uh, they do not yet have a real stake in the world economy. That is, countries for which the levers that we have are very weak in managing their behavior. Um, so um, we have actually looked exactly at the kind of issue uh, that we just heard about, which is how do you convince a country that presently does not have a, a nuclear program that is in their interest, if they want to help the climate, global climate, and invest in nuclear energy, for them, in fact, not to have a regime where they will, in fact, take the spent fuel and reprocess it. What, it, what does it take? So um, uh, over the last uh, year and a half uh, at Argonne, we, um, we've partnered with uh, uh, the economics department at the University of Chicago and uh, the Kellogg School at Northwestern um, and approached, um, with, the, with the assistance of the Department of Energy, um, the country of Poland. And we asked Poland, which is presently not regarded as a, uh, as a country that has a large investment in things nuclear, uh, what it would take for them uh, to enter a regime uh, that, in fact, where they would clearly not be proliferators. And uh, luckily for, for this discussion, uh, the Poles agreed basically to completely open up their books. Um, we worked with the economics ministry, with the Polish power grid company, with the energy market agency in Poland, with the National Atomic Energy Agency in Poland and with their Atomic Energy Institute. So basically all the players in Poland that would have a stake in what happens. And the idea was basically to use tools of uh, mechanism design theory, you know, how do you negotiate, uh, game theory, operational search, to figure out what the base case is for what you'd need to do to establish an non-proliferation regime that is effective in a country like Poland. 
Um, okay, so what were some of the conclusions? Well, first of all, uh, the question really is, uh, if you do this um, as a negotiation, they're going to be carrots and sticks. Um, and it's pretty clear that from the perspective of the Poles, um, the regime that you enter into has to be international in character. They simply will not trust any individual country, for example, to do fuel leasing <coughs> and take back. So whatever you do is going to have to be international. Uh, that also goes for the, uh, the sticks, the economic sanctions that you might, in fact, want to, uh, want to put in place. The carrots uh, come in basically four flavors. Guaranteed fuel supply um, by an international uh, fuel bank uh, with protection against fuel supply interruptions. Very important. Uh, guaranteed spent fuel take back, again by an international agency. Uh, a guaranteed floor on electricity prices. What worries the Poles enormously is <coughs> Russia and Russia's ability to basically bankrupt them should they choose to by simply manipulating the natural gas price in Western Europe. Um, and finally, uh, in order to be effective, they need help in the build-out of their electricity grid. Their electricity grid presently is not capable of supporting building one gigawatt plants. Uh, they would, the present grid is really designed uh, for much smaller plants. They could not support, in fact, building large plants. Uh, and they probably do not have the economic wherewithal both to build the plants and uh, to build up the grid. So that would require international loan guarantees. Um, so with that, I will stop. Well, thank you. You've kept within your time. Sig. Thank you, Scott. Let me uh, first comment on the issue uh, that David raised of, of nuclear renaissance or the question of nuclear renaissance. There, there may indeed not be a nuclear renaissance in terms of building of nuclear power plants, but there's definitely a change in thinking of people. And, and I notice it particularly in a sophomore seminar class that I teach in the spring on all things nuclear. And so we talk in a seminar style about nuclear weapons, nuclear terrorism, proliferation, and nuclear energy. And I get to the nuclear energy at the end, and for the most part, the students are somewhat dumbfounded as to why we aren't doing more about nuclear energy because the real threat in the world to them is global climate change. And so with that sort of an attitude change, that's a dramatic change from 20, 30 years ago. And so I hope we can capture the spirit of that uh, to make a nuclear renaissance happen. Uh, what I'd like to do in the spirit of what you've already heard is to make three points. And that first one is, one is sort of the inverse of the statement of our session and that is that we can and we will have nuclear weapons without nuclear power. Uh, second, that expanding nuclear power uh, globally uh, will indeed bring more countries within easy reach of, of nuclear weapons, and so we must deal with that. And third is what needs to be done uh, to get uh, what uh, Bill Perry, Secretary Perry this morning, called the political will to deal with this situation. So let, let me um, uh, deal with these three points. First, in terms of nuclear weapons uh, without nuclear power, the, the first and, and what I consider the greatest problem in terms of nuclear concerns today is, is that of nuclear terrorism. Now the good news is that, that terrorists do not have the capacity today 
to make the nuclear explosives from scratch. And as you've already heard, the front end, that's the enrichment, the highly enriched uranium path to the bomb. The back end, that is extracting plutonium uh, from uh, reactor spent fuel, uh, uh, that uh, is also difficult. So it takes reactors on one hand to make plutonium and the ability to extract, or it takes enrichment. Both of those are significant technologies that terrorists <coughs> cannot do today. However, the bad news is they don't have to make it. They can steal it. Uh, and, and the point is that there are nearly two million kilograms of each of the two principal explosive fuels, highly enriched uranium or plutonium, in the world today. And it only takes less than 10 kilograms of plutonium to make a bomb that can level Manhattan, or a few tens of kilograms of highly enriched uranium. And so we're trying to keep a few tens out of several millions out of the hands of terrorists. And that will be there regardless of whether we have a renaissance in nuclear power. And in fact, even if you shut off all nuclear power plants today, you're still going to have that problem. Now, we will have to think about what do we do to make sure we don't make that problem worse. But we have to deal with that incremental risk. And quite frankly, that incremental risk in terms of nuclear terrorism is quite small. And we need to keep that in mind. The second way to get nuclear uh, weapons uh, without nuclear power is that countries can do this clandestinely you know, without having a real commercial nuclear power program. And the preferred way to do this is actually to develop a nuclear research infrastructure. And that is research reactors, isotope separation capabilities, and so forth. Now, there's a long history of countries having done that. And in fact, we promoted this through the Atoms for Peace program starting in the 1950s. Now, the, the countries, uh, just some examples of countries that did this is, first of all, Israel. They built a nuclear research capability, and before anybody knew it, and of course they never admitted it, they built, uh, they built nuclear weapons. South Africa is another one that did it. They built nuclear weapons. It turns out since then they've given them up. Another country that tried but didn't get there is Iraq before the first Gulf War. No question they tried actually several ways. The Israelis stopped them once, but then uh, that's the plutonium route. Then they went the highly enriched uranium route. They didn't get there. Libya also tried uh, and recently decided on its own uh, to give it up. Uh, Syria may be an interesting example of actually just having gone that route recently, perhaps with a turnkey operation, but we're really not quite sure exactly what Syria did. Uh, so these are issues regardless of what we do in nuclear power in the world, we're going to face these problems anyway. So the second issue, though, if we do expand nuclear power significantly, we have to recognize that nuclear power, the development of the capabilities for nuclear power, uh, bring you very close to the capability for nuclear weapons. And that is the key element, is again, producing the bomb fuel, enriched uranium uh, or, or plutonium. Uh, and so the danger is not in the reactors per se, but uh, as uh, Dr. Rosner pointed out, that today's reactors just make plutonium. Even while you're producing electricity and heat and electricity, they make plutonium. Uh, the front end is the problem of enrichment. And that is for today's commercial power reactors, you, you have to take the uranium in the ground, which has less than 1% of the bomb isotope, 235 as it's called, and you have to enrich it, concentrate it, but only a little bit, the 3 to 5% of this concentration. 
So that's the enrichment process. That's perfectly legitimate. You can do that. However, once you develop that capability, it's also easy to just keep going to 80 to 90%. In that case, you have bomb fuel. That's the essence of the Iran problem today. They're using their sovereign right to make nuclear, uh, nuclear power, nuclear energy. And of course, we're concerned that once they put that in place, they just keep going, break out, and they have the bomb. Uh, on the back end, uh, we have the issue uh, that you develop the reactors for presumably peaceful purposes, but then you go ahead through the Purex process and you extract the plutonium to make the bomb fuel. That's the North Korea problem. They did precisely that. They first had help from, from the Soviet Union, <coughs> developed their own reactors, developed the chemical capabilities and the facilities. They extracted the plutonium and they got the bomb fuel. So I, I should note here, however, that, that as simple as I made that seem, it isn't that simple. And particularly in both of those cases, in North Korea and Iran, even though we hear about it and have heard about it, especially the past few years, both of these programs have been 50 years in the making. And North Korea started its nuclear program in the 50s with the help of the Soviet Union uh, in the spirit of what they call the Peaceful Atom Program. Iran, the place we're concerned about right now, we built the first research reactor in Iran, the United States, and had it operational in 1967. And the Shah planned to have a huge suite uh, of uh, light water reactors in Iran in the 1970s. But then, of course, everything changed dramatically in 1979. But nevertheless, it's taken 50 years. And so there have been many points at which one could have intervened. And so these are not problems that occur overnight. They're problems that have a, a long uh, lifetime. So now, however, as we contemplate this expansion uh, of nuclear power worldwide, then what we really have to worry about is the danger of more countries acquiring the capabilities for the front end and or the back end. And so that's the thing you here referred to as the fuel cycle. And that's the real issue. So how does one control who gets the ability to enrich and who gets the ability in the end to extract? Again, the reactor by itself is not the problem. And actually, to some extent, the Iran problem uh, would be easily solved in that they have a big reactor that the Russians have just built. It's not operational. But if the Iran would agree to import the fuel and then export the spent <coughs> fuel, uh, the problem would be reasonably straightforward. However, Iran insists on developing enrichment. And what most people don't know about, they're also working on a separate research reactor, which would be as good as the North Korean reactor to make plutonium. So they're actually putting everything in place. And so what they've done is they've put this nuclear weapon option in place. Now, they're not the only ones, of course, who've done so. Uh, there's no question that Japan has developed the nuclear weapon option. In fact, they not only have the front end, they not only have the back end, but whereas we're concerned about North Korea, which has made somewhere between 40 and 50 kilograms of plutonium, sort of six to eight bombs worth, Japan has, in Japan, over 5,000 <coughs> kilograms of plutonium, and Britain and France are storing another 35,000 kilograms of their plutonium because they've had such a huge uh, electrical power uh, nuclear program. Uh, however, we're not terribly much concerned uh, about Japan today, whereas we are concerned about the others. But the nuclear weapons option 
uh, is there. So what do we do then uh, to combat this problem of nuclear terrorism uh, and uh, this issue of the clandestine development uh, of nuclear weapons? Uh, and that is first, in terms of nuclear terrorism, you know, the, the most important aspect uh, is to make sure that terrorists can't acquire the bomb fuel, the nuclear materials. The nuclear weapons are actually, for the most part, safe, but the nuclear materials are a significant problem. They could get into the hands of terrorists, they could fashion some sort of an improvised uh, nuclear device. Then that's a matter of securing and safeguarding the materials wherever they happen to be, whether it's Russia, United States, Pakistan, or wherever. It turns out that's easy to say, much more difficult to do. In terms of the <coughs> clandestine activities, the two things we have to make sure that we separate is one of the issue uh, of capabilities, and the other is the issue of intent. And in terms of capabilities, what we need to do is to make sure that we monitor the nuclear, the civilian nuclear programs in each of these countries. And so why don't we worry as much about Japan today? Well, we don't worry as much because they are a friend. But also, as the rest of the world looks uh, at Japan, they have been transparent in their nuclear operations. Full compliance with IAEA inspections and including what's called the additional protocol, which gives the IAEA additional license uh, uh, to look. Uh, on the other hand, and, and in, I should say not only Japan, but you can add Canada, Switzerland, Belgium, Sweden, they all have the bomb fuel, they all have this program, they all have the nuclear option and the technology to go that way if they want to. They all are transparent. Somewhat less transparent is Brazil, and then much less transparent is North Korea and Iran. And as Professor Victor pointed out, it's a few of these problem <coughs> countries then that we have to worry about. And so then we must insist uh, on the fact uh, that there is transparency in the nuclear programs. Now the last issue is that of intent then. So how do, how would we, how do we determine intent? Of course, that's difficult. And then particularly, we know that the intent can change. And, and you know, nothing is more straightforward than the change in Iran. You know, pre-1979, uh, we thought Iran uh, was just fine, and after 1979, uh, we found Iran uh, to be the problem. So how do we deal with that? And then particularly, how do we get this political will uh, uh, that Secretary Perry uh, talked about? So we, we must be, if countries are indeed prepared to break out, then we, the international community, must be prepared to respond. And so the first line is through the UN Security Council. Now, that's, as you well know, that's very difficult uh, to achieve. However, one step short of that would be at least to have the United States, China, and Russia on the same page. And if you just think about, again, those two examples of North Korea and Iran, if US, China, and Russia would have been on the same page from the beginning, I think we'd have a substantial capability to change those programs and change the approaches. We've not been for several reasons. One of those reasons is that we, the United States, have tended to take this very America-centric view of these problems. Uh, and in North Korea, a good example of that is what's happened, let's say, from 2002 to 2006 or so, and then from 2006 on. In 2002, we were pretty much intent on the policy of regime change. Now, if you want China to cooperate with us, the last thing that China wants is regime change in North Korea, because that's nothing but potential difficulties for China. 
Actually, the last thing South Korea wants right now is regime change in North Korea because it's too fast a change. And so it wasn't until we listened somewhat better uh, and understood that we have to take into account the issues uh, that North Korea is concerned about, uh, from no that North Korea causes from China's standpoint, from South Korea, uh, as well uh, as from Russia. Iran, similarly, we have to, since we, we would like you know, very much to have China and, the United, uh, and, um, and Russia also pay more attention to the Iran problem. However, when we look at Iran, our risk-benefit calculus is very straightforward, and that is Iran is nothing but risk to us. As Russia looks at Iran, well, there's some risk, but there's potential benefit. There's the $1 billion nuclear reactor project and perhaps many more to come. There's the fact that there's some unsettled turmoil in the Middle East which keeps oil prices very high, which also turns out not to be so bad for Russia. As China looks at this, they need oil. And where do they get oil? To a large extent from Iran. So unless we can also take into account you know, how these other countries do their risk-benefit analysis, it's going to be very difficult to get them on the same page. But, but that's, so to get the political will, we have to have a better uh, common understanding of what's actually there. So uh, let me then uh, wrap it up to say that uh, Professor Victor pointed out very importantly that even just the U.S.-India deal would have such a substantial impact uh, on the issue uh, of carbon emissions. Now, if you could just think, <coughs> you know, if China and India both would increase the amount of nuclear energy tenfold, you know, in the next 50 years, if that's possible, that impact would be truly substantial. That's so important to the world that we shouldn't let the countries such as North Korea and Iran hold the expansion of nuclear power hostage. And I think that will take, you know, both all, everything we can muster technologically, institutionally, and politically. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Uh, let's open it up. We have 15 minutes for questions and comments, please. First, right here. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.